0: In Philippians chapter 4, in verse 4, timely verse for our church that has been through so much the last weeks as a family, Apostle Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the word of Christ, the word of God, is on a restoration mission. We live natural lives that are anything but joyful. And we need our hearts restored back to sanity. We pray that your spirit would do that today. As we behold the accomplishment, the victory of your son, what he has achieved for us as our elder brother, our prophet, priest, and king, our joint heir, the living God. We pray that you would minister to our grieving hearts this morning by your word. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Today, eight years ago, On August the 5th, 2010, a collapse of the main ramp within the San Jose mine in northern Chile left 33 miners trapped 2,300 feet underground, and that would last for 70 days. Now, to think about 2,300 feet, that's equivalent to over seven and a half football fields, buried underground, which they were there, again, for 70 days. Of course, one of the concerns during those 70 days was air quality. Carbon monoxide will asphyxiate you, and, and then methane explodes. Now, fortunately today, miners, and this, these Chilean miners were no exception, ...have these handheld computerized devices that help us gauge air quality in these mines. And that benefited them. But in the early days of mining, there was another effective... ...but let's just say more primitive way of gauging the air quality. They used canaries. Canaries' metabolism are very sensitive to air quality... And so as long as a canary is singing, the air quality is healthy. It's good. It's right. But if the gas levels began to rise, the canaries would stop singing. They would begin to wobble on their perch and eventually they would fall to the floor of their cage. You know, Christian joy is like those singing canaries. Uh, One of the first evidences that we are breathing in spiritual air that is not healthy for us is that our hearts stop rejoicing. Our hearts stop singing. And as we've seen throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians, the people he's writing to, he's addressing, there's nothing about their circumstances that would have ...produced any kind of joy. Uh, These recipients are experiencing persecution from the Roman government... ...and those associated with the Roman government. There's financial hardship. We know that even more clearly from 2 Corinthians 8... ...where it speaks about their spiritual impoverishment in the area of Macedonia. And then there was division going on even within the body and false teaching that had entered the church. In fact, their circumstances would naturally produce despair and cynicism and all the negative fruits of difficult circumstances. And so it's not arbitrary that the Apostle Paul, after addressing a division in the church with two women... Euodia and Syntyche, and just prior to addressing a universal issue with all of us, the problem of anxiety, we'll see that next week, he revisits the subject of joy. This is the emphasis in this letter. In fact, we have one point today in our message from our one verse. What Paul's going to show us today is that the Christian life is a life of joy. Let me repeat that. The Christian life is a life of joy. Look with me in verse 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. He's repeating himself just in case you didn't catch it. Again, I will say to you, rejoice. It's not natural to us in spite, in, in, in light of the circumstances that the listeners are hearing this. You know, it's remarkable that in all of his letters, and Paul wrote 13 letters of the New Testament, he never communicates desire for nor prays for his brothers' and sisters' circumstances to change. Have you ever noticed that? We tend to focus our prayers on these things, but he never prays that his brothers and sisters in Christ, in the churches that he's writing to, he never prays that their circumstances would change, and he never communicates desire for that. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, he does tell the Christian slaves, if you can be free, then be free. So he's not oblivious to the circumstances, but that's not his concern, or at least his central concern. And it's certain that these people lived in a, in a much more difficult environment than we do here in the West. They were under severe hardship. Uh, Death from disease. An imperial government that would crush you, that would persecute you, kill you for worshiping anyone but Caesar. But what he does do in his letters is call God's people to respond to their circumstances in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the central theme of Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel Christ. And that is the theme, that is the anthem of all of Paul's letters. And he says essentially in Philippians that life is a life of joy a life of joy. In fact, the word joy, rejoice, are joyful, those three words are used 359 times in the ESV Bible. 66 books, 359 times. Now, keep in mind joy is a gift. We know that because it's the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5:22. And yet rejoicing is a command. And so joy is a gift, rejoicing is a command. It's a gift, and it's a task. It's a gift, it's a responsibility. As with all doctrine, there is tension. It's all of grace, and we have responsibility. Now, we first saw this command in chapter 2, verse 18, where the apostle Paul wrote... You also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, this verb, not to get too technical, but it's a present imperative verb. Now, that's very important for us because it tells us that it's a command which should describe our life at all times as a Christian. Let me give you another thought. Because it's a command, joylessness is a sin. Have you ever thought about that? It's become our new normal, so we don't think in those terms. But joylessness is a sin. Have you ever confessed the sin of joylessness? And because that's true, it's obvious that we must learn how to distinguish true joy from all of its counterfeits. Joy is not some general upbeat feeling about something. It's not the power of positive thinking, as some Texas preachers would teach us. It's not some Pollyanna outlook on life. There are unbelievers who have a Pollyannish Outlook on life. Very optimistic people. And joy is not contingent happiness because our life is rosy. I saw joy in the Mears home over this past week. That proves that to be the case. Indeed, even in the Psalms of lament, which is the most common form of the Psalms, we see joy. Let me give you just one example of many. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Have you ever felt that way? Don't you love the Psalms? Just the raw honesty. And here's what's comforting about this. The one who's writing this is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, which means he or she is not in sin as this is being written. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But the lamenter here does not end there. Here's how he ends the psalm. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. That's the covenantal love. Hesed. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. In spite of what the psalmist feels, in spite of what appears to be the case, the psalmist brings us back to reality. I will rejoice. I will sing. How about the prophet Habakkuk? who's writing in a context where, yes, his people have been ungodly, but an even more ungodly nation is taking dominion over Israel. And here's what he writes. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. A yet praiser. Not a set praiser, where everything's set in place before you praise him. In other words, joy doesn't mean we are detached from the real world. We will grieve in this world. Our church has been grieving for several weeks now over various things. Paul felt sorrow even in this letter. He communicates this sorrow over Epaphroditus' sickness in chapter 2, verse 29. And in chapter 3, verse 18, we saw him shedding tears because of the false teachers that had entered Philippi. But even in those times of sorrow, we can, with the apostle Paul, say in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's the supernatural life. And then there's Jesus who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. Hebrews 12, verse 1. But the reason this seems so foreign to us is that we've often been misled to think of joy like we think of love. That it's primarily about feelings and spontaneous emotions. But think about this. He's commanding joy. Emotions and feelings cannot be commanded. Elsewhere, we're commanded to love. But feelings and emotions cannot be spontaneously commanded. You see, when God made us... He made us capable of thinking and willing and feeling... And before, our, before the fall and before sin entered the world, our thinking was informed and was controlled by God's revelation. It's going to be that way again one day in full. But that's how it was before sin entered the world. Our thinking was controlled, it was informed by God's word. In other words, we were designed to think God's thoughts... After him, Adam and Eve thought God's thoughts after him. And such thoughts would direct and inform our will, our emotions, and our feelings. But that order was reversed when sin entered the world. And now our wills tend to be controlled by our feelings... And our emotions. You know that from your own personal experience. Let me say that again. Our wills tend to be controlled and informed by our feelings, which are fallen, and our emotions, which are fallen. And our thoughts are often controlled by our wills. Everything has been reversed because of the fall. And now because of sin... We naturally only rejoice when our lives are exactly the way we want them to be. Which is, by the way, a parody of rejoicing. It's a parody of true joy. Indeed, most people base their inner life on their outward circumstances. And I think that most people in here would agree with that. And now Paul, get this, is on a rescue mission. He's on a rescue mission. That's what the word of God is doing. It's coming to rescue us. And he is telling us to rejoice always. Otherwise we'll be whiplashed by how things are going in our lives. And our inner life will be completely enslaved To our circumstances and the relationships and the location in which God has placed us. Our inner life will be volatile and dark because of that. And that's a parody of the Christian life. Which is, as Paul describes it in chapter 1 verse 25, progressing and joy in the faith. Joy in the faith. That's the Christian life. And so, what is Christian rejoicing? I've asked myself that question. How would I define Christian rejoicing? Again, that's a tautology because only all true rejoicing is Christian rejoicing, but there are parodies of rejoicing, correct? So, what is Christian rejoicing? It is to treasure Christ and to ponder his beauty and importance until your heart rests in Him and Him alone. It is to treasure Christ and to ponder His beauty and His importance until your heart rests in Him and Him alone. And rejoicing and joy isn't just a better, more pleasant form of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. It is the Christian life. As Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is the believer's strength. And any lesser fuel, and we're all running on some kind of fuel, will lead to frustration and long-term breakdown. And you have been there. I have been there. We know that by experience. Let me say it another way. Joylessness is self destructive. Joylessness is self destructive. Let me give you a text for that. We've already looked at it, we didn't expound on it on that day. But in chapter 3, verse 1, just flip over one page in your Bible, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord. Same command, present imperative verb. To write the same things to you is no trouble. He keeps repeating this because we have short memories. And our faith is so weak. And it's so abnormal to us. It's so unnatural to us. And we're used to living the natural life, aren't we? To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. Notice, and is safe for you. It's safe for you. Paul is saying joy is safe. Let's turn it on its head. Joylessness is dangerous. Joy is safe. Joylessness is dangerous. Let me give you three reasons. Just from Paul's letter... To the Philippians. This is not a comprehensive list, but as I've mused on this text, let me give you three reasons why joy is safe, rejoicing is safe, and joylessness is dangerous. The first reason is joy protects us from serving Jesus and his church for the wrong reasons. If the joy of the Lord is not your strength, There will be another sinister motivation behind your service. Paul has already addressed that in Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's been concerned that there is a kind of self-loving motivation within the body. Because they're not running on the fuel of joy. George Mueller. Who founded this wonderful orphanage in England. That housed over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. He said that the joy of the Lord was the key. In his ministry. Here's what he said. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Happy being there a synonym for joy. Sometimes we make that too sharp of a distinction. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how that inner life might be nourished. Note the order. Yes, we do serve the Lord. But before we serve Him, we need to get to the place every day, every morning, and fight for joy. A second reason joy is safe is it protects us from temptation. It protects us from the allures of sin. Again, in chapter 3, he has spoken about those whose God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And he's trying to address that with joy. Keep in mind, this is a very important point. And this is why, among many reasons, I believe, and my whole theology rests on a literal Adam. I believe that there was literally one man through whom sin entered the world. And this man was our federal head. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and death to all men for all have sinned. Sin was, or Adam was our representative in the garden. And what Adam lost in the garden of Eden, we lost in the garden of Eden. And now... The human heart, whether we're a believer or an atheist, the human heart longs for what was lost in the Garden of Eden. There's a sense of nostalgia in the human heart. And one of the primary treasures that was lost was communion slash joy in the living God. And now, our hearts are hardwired for that joy. Our hearts long for that joy. And if we develop what I call joy source amnesia. If we develop joy source amnesia. That is, we forget where the true source of joy is. If we develop joy source amnesia, we will look for joy source replacements. And that always leads to disaster. When we look to something in the created order to do what only our God can do. But Paul knows it's hard for Satan to, ch- to tempt a joyful believer with illusory and fleeting parody joys. Because we have the real thing. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator. Joy in the Lord will guard you from the empty pleasures the tempter uses to bait his hooks. You have the real thing. Jonathan Edwards. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. Third reason that joy is safe and joylessness is dangerous is that... Joylessness is behind all the divisions in your relationships, your family, and the church. He just addressed Euodia and Syntyche, who are at odds with one another. Christian women. You have never met a joyful, divisive person. You don't even have to think about it. You've never met a joyful, bitter person. It doesn't exist. What causes the quarrels? What causes the disunity? What causes the anxiety that we're going to look at next week? Our desires that have not found their joy and their sufficiency in Christ attach on to something else. In the created order that we feel we must have or fear we might lose. And that's why the fangs come out. Our desires have attached themselves to something that's not Jesus. And whatever it has attached itself to is now our functional Messiah. Messiah. And created messiahs never come through. They don't deliver on what they promise. And so it's something you think you've got to have. Or it's something you fear you're going to lose. And that's when the anger, the bitterness, the vitriol, and the anxiety manifest themselves. And imagine the effect if a family... And church family live lives of perpetual joy and rejoicing. What would it do to the jealousy? What would it do to the gossip? What would it do to the slander? The stinginess. The discontentment. The ingratitude. When you hear that, you can rest assured that person is joyless. All those sinful manifestations are grown in the joy or in the soil of joylessness. But in this fallen world, here's the question How is this Christian joy possible? We live in a broken world, a fallen world, a sin-cursed world. How is joy possible? It's not natural, it's supernatural. We see it here in that phrase, notice in verse 4, in the Lord. Don't overlook that. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the answer. In other words, this joy isn't based on our circumstances nor how we feel about our circumstances. It's based on our union with Jesus Christ. And this understanding of joy is not new with Paul. Paul is not creating a new religion. We see it with Jesus. Remember, in John 15, Jesus is giving some final words to his disciples... Just before his betrayal and cross. And just before the most tumultuous season of the disciples' lives. A season that would end with ten of them being martyred. At least ten of them. One being exiled. One betraying him. And yet in John 15, the Lord Jesus Christ... Assures them that they would have joy in the midst of the grief. Listen to John 15 verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. That my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. If you're starving for something. And someone says, let me take you to a buffet. You're going to jump in the car immediately. We are starving for joy. And Jesus is saying, I have a kind of joy that will fill you, satiate you. Notice what he says. He says, it's my joy. Jesus says, it is my joy. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul says that he yearns for the believers with the very affections of Christ. We saw that that's actually the life of Christ being lived through Paul. I have been crucified with Christ, he wrote in Galatians 2, verse 20. And yet it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me is the life of Christ through the believer. So joylessness indicates that I am not availing myself to the life of Christ Paul describes this as walking by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. Being led by the Spirit, Galatians 5.18. Living by the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, Galatians five twenty five. And living by the Spirit gives us three confidences. Or three things that produce deep confidence that spawns joy. The first is this. God loves us. The gospel teaches us that more than any other truth. God loves us and has everything under control in spite of what we might see or feel. And he works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Secondly, I deserve much worse than I'm getting. And that because of the cross I won't get that. Thirdly, joy that is inexpressible. Peter calls it that in first Peter one eight. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Philippians four verse seven. And love, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Ephesians three nineteen. It's just remarkable those three phrases and three different letters. Are mine. They are my inheritance. And I will one day in the resurrection experience those truths in full. That is my future. That is your future as a believer. Indeed, what did he write in chapter 3? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. There's power in the promises. In 2014, the number one song in the country was the song called Happy. Written by a guy named Pharrell Williams. You couldn't turn on the radio. It got to the point it made me unhappy. It was the number one song in 24 countries. That shouldn't surprise us. The heart longs for joy and happiness that we lost in Adam. The, The song made its debut in a movie called Despicable Me 2 and so you have this this villain this former supervillain named Gru and as Lucy kisses Gru the song begins to play and it transforms Gru that's the gospel When former despicable people like us experience the goodness, the grace, the love of God in Christ, it changes us. The result is joy. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 31, 7. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Steadfast love being the covenantal love that God Communicates through those who are in saving covenant with Him. And so, our sins have been forgiven. We have been justified because Jesus Christ has borne our guilt. We have been given the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We are children of God. Sons and daughters of God by gracious adoption. And yes, we will take our hits in this world. There will be pain. There will be difficulties. But eternity awaits us. That is our reality. Secured by the Son of God. At an infinite price, an infinite cost. And if we fail to respond with joy at those truths. It's because... We haven't fully grasped the depth of our sin and the curse from which Christ has redeemed us from, or the heights to which he has raised us by his exaltation. And so there's a, a lot on the line. There's so much on the line with this command and this truth. Joylessness is false advertising. A joyless Christian is bearing false witness to an accomplishment of Jesus Christ. Don't let it be your norm. It is our new normal in a fallen world, but it is abnormal. It eclipses God's glory. Again, Jesus' words in John 15, verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified. Now, our ears ought to perk up there. Jesus is about to give us some final words before the cross. And he's telling us, okay, here's the purpose for your life. Here's how you carry out this purpose. Because we were created for God's glory. All right? We weren't created so that you could build your portfolio. And go on every vacation at a whim. We were created for the glory of God. And here's what he says. By this my father is glorified. That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Now in the context. The fruit that he is centrally focusing on. Is joy. Joy in the midst of chaos. That's what the disciples are facing. They're facing chaos. And he says, this is how you will glorify the Father. In the midst of the chaos, joy. I want you to think about something else as well. We sin, generally speaking, we commit sins of commission. Intentional, presumptuous, high-handed sins because we believe God's holding out. We believe God needs supplementing. We take vitamins because we believe our diets need supplementing. And so we go rogue because we believe God needs supplementing. That's why we sin. And Jesus is saying in this most important of verses that God's glory... And our joy travel together. By this the Father is glorified that you bear much joy. Adam believed that God was holding out. And that's why he went rogue. Chaos ensued. Every time we go rogue and live in a manner that is... Contrary to God's purposes for us, chaos ensues. But when we recognize God's glory and our joy are related, that is human flourishing. Why? Because it's God's joy in us. It is Christ's joy in us. So essentially, the fruit of the Spirit is a composite sketch of Jesus. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 4.19? That he was in the trebles Travails of childbirth until Christ be formed in us. It's the life of Christ in the believer. So, as we close, I want you to consider one crucial truth in all of this that we need to consider. Because we live in a fast food age. We pace back and forth in front of the microwave. Joy, along with every other expression of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and they all travel together. We recognize that. Doesn't typically happen spontaneously. Yes, the Holy Spirit is omnipotent. He is all-powerful and He is sovereign. But the fruit generally grows progressively by means the reformers coined that phrase means of grace which means if we're cutting ourselves off from the means you will guaranteed be joyless let me offer you some means from J I Packer in his wonderful book keeping with the spirit as we close the spirit Works through means. Now what's he doing? The Spirit has come to glorify Christ. By conforming us to Christ. And by producing the life of Christ through us. The one who was joy incarnate. The Spirit works through means. Through the objective means of grace. Namely. Biblical truth. Prayer. Fellowship worship, and the Lord's Supper. And with them through the subjective means whereby we open ourselves to change. Namely, thinking. We'll see that in chapter 4, verse 8. Listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, admonishing oneself, sharing what is one's heart with others, and weighing any response they make. The Spirit shows His power in us not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions, impressions, or prophecies, but rather by making these regular means effective to change us for the better and for the wiser as we go along. Habit forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us on in holiness. Love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are all of them habitual. Ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. Habits of the heart. Disciplines of the heart. Formed by the consistent means of grace. Corporate worship, private worship, family worship, fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, an open Bible, and a heart that's ripe to respond to what the Word of God calls us to. In this case, to rejoice always. And again, one of the means that we have that the Lord Jesus has entrusted to us is the table. It's a glorious means of grace. We observe the table the first Sunday of every month. For those of you that are visiting with us, um, we invite you to participate with us upon a couple of conditions. First, you are born again. You've been converted to Christ. You you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. His all-sufficient work. His, His obedience... To the Father as our substitute. His death on the cross as our substitute. His resurrection from the grave as our substitute. And you are trusting in him alone. And you are a member in good standing of a like-minded gospel preaching church. We invite you to partake with us. Because this is not the table of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not the table of Fisherville Baptists. It's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we partake, let's bow our heads and ask God the Spirit to restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Because it would not magnify his worth to partake of these elements in a joyless fashion. Let's pray. Father, the psalmist asked one of the most important questions that could be asked. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? Lord, we've come to recognize today that one of those iniquities that we commit perhaps daily is joylessness. After all that your Son has done for us, after all that you have done for us in your Son and by your Spirit for us to have the audacity to be joyless. Who could stand before you if you mark those iniquities? But as the psalmist continues, he says, there is forgiveness with you. There's forgiveness with you. And we know that that forgiveness is found not just in the animal sacrifices as the psalmist contemplated. It's found in the sacrifice once for all for sin. The Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, might bring us to you. So, fathers, we come to this table. We have every reason to be joyful. Our past sins, our present sins, our future sins have been dealt with by the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our eternity has been secured and even now by the spirit we can live as citizens of heaven with joy. We have so much to be grateful for. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for our Christ. May that salvation that he has secured for us. Be the means by which our joy is restored this morning. We recognize how supernatural that is. In this fallen world. But you're the God who works supernaturally by your spirit. and We're trusting you for that today. And we're asking these things.